This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. Tim Krepp is a D.C. institution, a local historian, tour guide, author of the books Capitol Hill Haunts and Ghosts of Georgetown, and even a former congressional candidate. We're going to talk with him about how Washington dealt with previous pandemics and how that compares to now. Tim Krepp, a friend of Roll Call, uh, been in a lot of our uh, coverage over the years. Usually, uh, you know, it, it first started when you ran for Congress, when you ran against uh, Eleanor Holmes Norton back in uh, 2012. Locally, uh, you're, uh, you're a docent at Congressional Cemetery, and uh, you're a, a local historian and, and know a lot about the Capitol and so forth. Uh, but I think this is the first time you've been on political theater, and uh, we, we appreciate it, uh, even in uh, sort of a grim time uh, that we're living through. Uh, and we're going to talk about not just this grim time, but other grim times. Uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about multiple grim pandemic times in Washington with you. Welcome to Political Theater, Tim. Thank you for having me on. So, um, just let me let me go through the numbers just real quick. I wrote them down because they're just so staggering about previous pandemics. The big one, if you will, uh, the 1918-1919 influenza epidemic. Most people call it the Spanish flu, although one of the reasons they call it the Spanish flu is that Spain had a free media at the time, and they actually reported on it when we weren't. <laughs> so, no good deed goes unpunished. 500 million people worldwide infected. That was a third of the world population at the time. At least 50 million deaths, uh, which is about 3% of the population at the time, and that's probably an undercount. Uh, at that point, and at least 675,000 U.S. deaths. D.C. was basically closed down. We can get into some of the detail about like what how Congress worked with it. Uh, but I just want to fast forward real quick to the 1957 flu epidemic. Uh, we're looking at 1.1 million people worldwide infected, uh, about 116,000 deaths, according to the CDC. And even Richard Nixon got sick. Uh, he was vice president at the time, and he contracted it on an overseas trip and was hospitalized in March of 1957. And then uh, the 68-69 flu, uh, sometimes called the Hong Kong flu, 1 million worldwide, 100,000 U.S. deaths. Uh, and uh, and uh, we can get into some of the mortality because there there were there were some deaths attributed in Congress to to influenza, but I mean let's let's start with the big one the the the, the big flu epidemic in 1918 1919. What's your understanding of how much this gripped Washington? Because this is your this is your bailiwick, uh, you know, like your the the Washington area, and and I know you like to hang out in cemeteries. I do, I do, and and I would actually add one more thing to all that, which which somehow. I guess makes this even worse is that the, the influenza epidemic hit young people particularly hard. Something like over half the victims were between 18 and 35. Um, not that one life's more valuable than another, but traditionally the influenza epidemic hits the older folks, the uh, and then the infants as well, so the very young. Uh, this in, inverted that curve and started hitting young folks, which uh, which adds to the terror in a certain sense. And and also, I heard that there were actually more U.S. casualties in, from the flu than there were in World War One. 
and and so so if you if you survived World War One as a soldier, uh, you you uh, you had to also survive influenza. <laughs> These stories are the same. The flu and World War One are intertwined. We'll talk more about that as this goes along and how how one reinforced the other and vice versa. Um, but. You look at these numbers, they're staggering. You look at these deaths. Uh, you talk about Congressional Cemetery. They still have the old uh, ledger books that you go in there. And they're this beautiful, giant, like, leather-bound books that you open up and you scroll down. You feel like you're in Gringotts or something like that on Harry Potter. You roll your hands down and you just see line after line after line of 32, 27, 28-year-old. And it just it just overwhelmed them. Um, if you're familiar with uh, the Folger Library, uh, just behind yeah. the Capitol. The, yeah, the Capitol, Shakespeare, Shakespeare, Shakespeare Folger Library. Library. Mm-hmm. Um, just across the street, just next to down, there's a building at 301 uh, East Capitol. Uh, the, the lady that lived there um, lived to be... 148 or something like that. Very recent, very recent, very, very, very old. Um, my math can be wrong, history major. Um, but uh, she wrote a, a nice little book about growing up in on Capitol Hill in the 19, that time period, 1900s, 1910, 1920s. Uh, and she had a, a aunt or some family member that worked at that congressional cemetery. Um, they had the bell that's, that's still at the cemetery. Uh, and the bell would ring whenever someone was buried. And she just remembers the bell ringing constantly, once an hour, uh, more bodies than they could put in the ground at one time. They were stacking up outside the chapel, uh, just this this thing. So you have those reminiscences. But let me take a break from all that and just jump to how much this didn't affect America. I mean, you're, you're talking about this overwhelming effect, but yet somehow it, it gets forgotten. So how do you have this thing that kills 675,000 Americans, 50 million people worldwide, devastates communities, crushes you know small towns in Alaska, all the horror stories we've been hearing about so much recently, and then it just fades away. I mean, it just gets lost in the ether. So, uh, um, so there's I think a lot to do with with the timing of it during the war. I mean, this hits this hits DC, this hits the East Coast right as Germany is collapsing, right as the war is coming to a thing, and there's also the nature of of how few people view diseases at the time. Um, you expected to die of diseases. You, this was not uncommon to have uh, pandemics, and, and especially associated with wartime. During, during the American Revolution, smallpox killed vastly more people than the British ever did at that same time period. That's uh, well-known and well-discussed that about twice as many people died, soldiers died in the Civil War from typhoid and other diseases than died of the war itself. So I think part of it is just expected. Oh, there's a huge war going on. That causes dislocation. There's a a cultural expectation. It's not necessarily medical linkage, although there will be some ones down the road, that, you know, big wars cause big spreads of disease. And that's, that's what we're facing here at that point. So it's one of the, one of the the four horsemen of the apocalypse are riding war and pestilence are riding together. There's a reason for that in the Bible and Hmm. and in real life. I hadn't thought about that. That's, uh, (laughs) that's terrifying. (laughs) <laughs> good, good. <laughs> I'm not here to comfort you. <laughs> so, <laughs> also, we don't have an understanding of what it's like to live in a non-media world like they did. They had a, a paper in the morning, maybe uh, the evening paper, and that was right. your, your source of income. There was uh, there was no radio that we know radio today. Certainly no TV. Obviously, no internet or Facebook, social media, any of that stuff. So, you got a little bit of news that way. Um, if you chose choose to opt in. Uh, and you have to affirmably say, go on, read the paper every day. Right. And your dad gets the paper, maybe some gossip going around. Um, this was kind of brought home to me several years ago. 
I'm up in Buffalo talking to some of my family members. We're going through all the old family stories. And, and my great-grandmother, Winnie, had these, she passed away years ago, but had this whole collection of stories. And they're filtered through her eccentric view of the world. But she had a story where she, she talked about how she and her sister had gone to a, a school dance. The sister comes home, uh, and they said from the top of her head to the, to the bottom of her jaw, color, or she just turns red. She just turns red. She kills over. She dies that night. She's at a school dance that evening. She comes home and she dies that evening. So presumably healthy to quick death. And like, hold on, that that sounds like one of the symptoms of the young people getting caught with this disease. And I looked right. it up. Um, uh, I actually pulled a death certificate. Uh, it's November of 1918. It's smack in the middle of the flu here. It's right there, but it's not listed. It's almost certainly a flu death. This is one right. of those deaths that, that are really related. You know. Healthy 15-year-olds just don't keel over and die for nothing. So uh, um, so you multiply that by $675,000, you have these individual tragedies that did not necessarily make up a constellation of a mass tragedy that would today with the way we see things. And, you know, one of the things that struck me, too, is that obviously the scale of the, of the pandemics that followed was mitigated by the fact that we had developed vaccines um, and so forth. But, like, the... You know, th- there seemed to be in D.C. A, a real like clamping down because we were, you know, so close to being the epicenter of it. You know, people were coming from overseas to work in in Washington in the war in the, in the War Department and so forth. After the uh, as the the war was starting to come to an end in 1918, and people in D.C. certainly knew what was happening, but like. Aside from just sort of staying away from, I mean, like they had some pro forma sessions of Congress. Congress didn't seem to alter its its uh, its operations as much. I mean, like they 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 still voted on things in October, and I just had this like as I was reading about this, uh, and I talked to the House historian and the Senate historian about this. It just it seems remarkably similar, you know, to the way we're doing things now. Now, granted. You know, we're talking about the flu, and this is the coronavirus is not the flu. You know, we don't have a vaccine now. We don't have we didn't have a vaccine then. But it's just it just seems nuts. And then when you look at these other pandemics, like in '57 and '68, '69, it was the same thing. They really didn't alter their schedule that much, right. <laughs> even though like the vice president got sick, and <laughs> yeah. you know, in in '68, '69, the the this guy uh, in uh, a Democrat from Tennessee, Robert Everett, died of the of the flu, um, and that was in a more mass media section. And I just think, I mean, as a historian, is it conceivable you think that like People a hundred years ago would have said, "Like, well, they'll obviously know how to deal with this much differently <laughs> in a, in a century's time." It's yeah. There's a there's a kind of juxtaposition. Their, their medical knowledge is less than ours. I hope I hope we've learned something in a hundred years. Um, but because of that, their personal resiliency in some ways is not better, but but higher. Um, and going back to the the example of my uh, my great grandmother's uh, sister that passed away, she was one of eight kids. I mean, that, that was uh, so it was, a, it was I'm sure an individual tragedy. Obviously, right. it stayed in family lore all the way to the present day. But you expected to have eight kids, and you might have one or two or three of them. You the idea that they would all live to adulthood, even in a modern time like 1918, 1919, uh, was still. You know, you're, you're thinking pretty lucky here, and and, you, and I go back to my family members of that period. They all had my great my grandfather lost his sister appendicitis. You you just had that in the background of life as right. part of what was going on. So uh, uh, nowadays, if we lose a child, it is a tragedy. I mean, it is a uh, tragedy back then, of course, too. But it would be uh, a, a it wouldn't be uncommon. 
Yeah. It would be uncommon. Would, yeah. I don't know of my daughter's friends. I don't know ones that die of that. You wouldn't expect, expect, uh, expect that. Um, half the bodies at Congressional Cemetery are of children. It was a common backdrop, a sad backdrop to life, and it crushed people just like it would crush today. But it was something you just had to deal with and you had to live with because that's what life was like back then. And do you think that there's some of that, I mean, creeping into some of the debate about reopening? Because it's like, well, people die all the time. I mean, I mean, you hear public figures saying this. People die all the time, and we can't, uh, we can't like, shut everything down and destroy the world economy when people are going to die anyway. And I just, it's like, it's really hard to hear that, but it is, is it just like this weird social Darwinism truth also? We've grown up without risk. We've we're our, of our generation, perhaps even our parents' generation, we've grown up without having to assess risk. Uh, do I go out into the woods and hunt for food and the bear could kill me? I mean, is that, do I, I don't have to make that assessment. I can generally survive without having to weigh risk. Um, and even within the military, within a war construct, we don't want to accept risk the way that they would have had to accept on a daily basis back then. No, and I, I mean, I think about, I mean, this was a couple of weeks ago when, uh, the death toll in the United States surpassed the the number of people who were killed in the during the Vietnam War, which was around fifty eight thousand, and and now we're you know we're approaching ninety thousand. We're hovering around ninety thousand. We'll probably, you know, hit a hundred thousand, which seems to be a real possibility sometime in the next month or so. And it it is this is now sort of taking the place of what war used to now, right? Because now we we can avoid casualties in war in a way that we couldn't, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago. We don't lose people in wars. We lose a token few, the honored fallen that can stand in for the, the everyday experience that would have been even in Vietnam. I mean, 58,000 for a fairly small war is a, is a huge number compared to, uh, I mean, the, the modern wars are just as big as Vietnam, but we're losing 5,000, 6,000 folks over a span of, Decades, literally. And that was another thing during the influenza epidemic. I'm going back, I'm looking at some of these, uh, the, the Washington Post, these other papers, and it's, it's in the papers. It's, it's often front page news. It's rarely the headline, though. The headline is still the war news. You know, Germany surrenders here. This is whatever this is going on. Um, where it's still bottom below the fold, it's still prominent, and something like that. But you flip over the page, you go back a page or two, and then there's just page after page, and the lists of the dead from the war, so fallen from the war. So you're already faced with this death. You're already reeling in the, the, the losses of the death. You know, 599 district residents are on the, the D.C. War Memorial down there on the National Mall. So, uh, so that's, you know, that's a, a pretty good number from what is not a very big city. It's interesting seeing how cities reacted. I mean, Philadelphia is held up as the, the classic failure city. It hits there first among the other cities. It comes in on the troop ships coming over from, uh, from, from back from Europe. Um, uh, they're just, no offense to Philadelphia, they're just poorly run at the time. They were, uh, they're very corrupt. Whereas St. Louis, some of those other cities are held up as they, they saw it coming. Uh, they, they were able to shut down schools early. They were able to prevent things from happening. Um, so you have that, that regional differences that we're seeing that same debate today on, on how Florida versus New York versus, you know, the Pacific Northwest are handling things. Um, and I think for Washington, D.C., because we were federally controlled, um, there wasn't the debate that you're seeing today that, like, when the federal government said, we're going to shut it down, like, okay, I mean, we don't really have a mayor, we have district commissioners that are appointed by the government, so... Uh, well, and and it, it is interesting that the, you know, the 
the number of the the things that were shut down then almost seem to be the same ones. You know, theaters, well, yeah. church, um, sure. churches, uh, schools. And and also, it's important to note that it, it happened in two different waves. Like, the first wave in the spring of 1918 didn't produce this wide-scale shutdown. But the no. second wave, when it hit, which was more deadly, uh, it was a mutation of, of the flu. That's when everything got shut down. And again, it's like Congress is still there. <laughs> like everybody else is shut down, and Congress is still there. And I'm just like... They close the public galleries, and they have a... They have a a tearful vote about closing the public galleries. I'm like, heck, yeah, fine, close the public galleries. That seems like a pretty no-brainer. To, of course, to us, we have TV. We have ways to, to make the public aware of things. But, uh, but they have this, this, you know, this, this vote on the on the truce to close public galleries. Congress, I, I think they kept the pro forma alive, but a lot of folks didn't necessarily come. Um, there was a vote on October 14th uh, about uh, beefing up the public health service, and it's kind of. Uh, if you're familiar with it, and those that, that are listening are may not be, I'm sure, it was a bill to beef up the public health service, to to allocate more resources to PHS, as it was called at the time. The lay of the land at the time is all the good docs had been drafted and sent overseas. So public health in the U.S. had taken a beating before this. So how do we, uh, you know, we need, to, we need to help them out a little bit. Pretty much a no-brainer, um, but they only had uh, 100 and, 170. They couldn't get a quorum. <laughs> they a quorum. Um, and so, just like today, they're like, look, let's just get this thing through. Let's not make everyone come back to Washington, D.C. Um, keep in mind, the Speaker of the House and the minority, majority leader time at this time are bedridden. They are just emerging from having the flu themselves. They, Champ, they Champ are, Clark. You know. Champ Clark. Champ yes. Clark. And the, uh, the Speaker of the House at the time. And then that uh, the horrible guy from uh, Kitchen, Claude Kitchen from uh, uh, North Carolina, the majority leader. Um, so they're they're just getting out of there, and they, they didn't have serious cases, but they were bedridden for a couple of days, right. and they. Uh, um, so they're so everyone's all right, guys. Let's just have this vote, move on. Right. Um, but a couple of reps decide to uh, gum the works up and, and try to call for a quorum vote. The 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 Tom Tom Massey's of the time, right? I wasn't naming names, but. Uh, <laughs> We uh, we were uh, when we were discussing right before we started taping. Uh, you you, uh, you mentioned 1976 flu. I, I you know I want to I want to come back to that too because it did have the uh, this this moment where you know it was, it was a threatened to be a pretty bad flu vaccine or flu season, and uh, they quickly they hustled in a vaccine and and Gerald Ford who was president at the time you know made this sort of show of getting a shot and yes. it didn't work. <laughs> that that is. So that's a very interesting kind of whole story of how that works. So you have you have the the fifty seven flu, you have the sixty eight sixty nine flu seasons. You at this point have we've won. We have defeated the flu. You're going to have a, a bump. You're going to have some things. Scientists are going to swarm in. They're going to isolate it. They're going to do whatever magic science people do. I don't know. I didn't pay attention to biology classes. They're going to do all that stuff. They're going to come up with a vaccine, and we're going to survive that. And that's what. And it's interesting how this happened in 76 is that Gerald Ford is on the ropes. He's having a rough political time. Um, uh, in January of that year, this young soldier, soldier up at Fort Dix is out on a, on a march. He'd already had the flu. He shouldn't have even been out in the march, but he goes over and he kills over and dies. They, they start looking at his tissues. Oh, my God, there's this 1918 like flu. So it's going to spread everywhere. Um, by February, the CDC is saying we need to keep an eye on this. 
Uh, meanwhile, the WHO, the World Health Organization, take a look at this. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't think this is what you're talking about here. This is. Let's keep an eye on it, but it doesn't. A bunch of all the soldiers at Fort Dix get said they quarantine those soldiers. It works, but the institutional panic gets ratcheted up to a point where we don't want to have this become a problem. Uh, superimposes it being an election year again, a 76th election year. Um, and Ford and the, the political administration are kind of saying, like, we need to win. We need to be able to say that we swooped in and we blocked this disease from happening and everyone got their shot, this tangible reminder of how science and America saved their lives, and then it would go on. Very fortunately, it never spread outside of Fort Dix. It never got anywhere. So the, the actual flu was contained. The shots went out there. There were some neurological disorders, about 400 people that got them, and then a lot of people reported getting sick. They also used those big uh, pneumatic uh, you know, shots on you, so they hurt like hell. I never ended up with one of those scars, uh, like, but I know, you know that people got on their shoulders from different vaccines, but... Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, and and we see you know that there is still and you know I'm and again I don't mean to strain the metaphor too much or strain the parallels, but you know you have the president saying you know recently you know that he was taking you know an unproven treatment you know hydroxychloroquine to uh, prevent getting you know COVID, and you know it it just for some reason it, it, when you when you mentioned the seventy six flu I just thought of that image of Ford getting a shot. That could have <laughs> could have done neurological damage to him, right, and, it's yeah. just, and it's not funny, but it's it's kind of funny, you know. It's <laughs> a little uh, and, yeah. at least, and I guess you know we should just be like grateful that that Ford didn't gargle bleach or anything like that, too. Yeah, um, I mean, in, it's just in a weird in a weird sense, it kind of reassured America that we have now defeated endemic disease. I mean, obviously, the AIDS epidemic as a pandemic will will change some of that. Um, but even that's going to be localized to gay communities, things like that. So uh, uh, it doesn't; it has a huge effect on some parts of America, but it doesn't change that. So we we don't expect to have to worry about this. We think we're past that. That's something that happens in the past. And so now that we find ourselves, crap, we are dealing with this. There is no vaccine on the radar for the timelines we're talking about here, um, and our playbook has been thrown away. So that uh, it, whereas in 1918. Their playbook was, was well well leafed. They had they had gone through that. We talked about three members of Congress passing away from from Corona. Um, uh, uh, Henry Cabot Lodge yeah. <laughs> from the from, no, from yeah. Corona, I'm sorry from, from Flinza, <laughs> You're right. Um, Henry Cabot Lodge's son-in-law, who was a representative from um, Massachusetts, had gone into the army. He had died in in January of that year of a earlier measles epidemic that broke out in the army. So. Even members died of things at the time, so so it wasn't necessarily a shock that would happen. Whereas nowadays, if a forty-year-old member of Congress dies of a respiratory disease, that would probably get something more than the page A eighteen story that the Post did about it at the time. Well, Tim, uh, I mean, you know, it's 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 hard to reflect on history as as it's unfolding before us. But I appreciate you know you talking about like you know some of the some of what you've seen from. You know, just your study of what happened before, and and kind of how you look to a future where you try to make sense of it, at least for people who are yeah. visiting <laughs> in, uh, uh, you know, in in some sort of capacity in 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 the future. Uh, uh, thanks for uh, thanks for talking. Absolutely, thanks, Jason. That's going to do it for this episode of Political Theater. If you enjoyed Tim and I's discussion, or you enjoyed other episodes of Political Theater, please tell a friend that they can subscribe anywhere you find fine quality podcasts. 
Political theater is produced by Siki Rokal, a leader in nonpartisan policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is owned by Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.